What we do here is go back, 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 back. Welcome back to season two of Bullpen Chatter. I am your host, Ian McMahon. To kick off the new season, my next call to the bullpen is a guy who I personally look up to and I've learned a lot from. This might be my favorite episode today just based off the abundance of information you guys are about to get. Sit back, relax, and for my listeners across the globe, please welcome the creator of Tread Athletics, Ben Brewster. All right, thank you, Ben, for coming on the show. Um, we just want to get right, get started and kind of roll into it kind of talk about how Tread came to be and did you ever expect it to have the audience reach that it does today? Yeah, so uh, I've told the story a bunch of times. Uh, so I'll just kind of just kind of get into it. So uh, I basically like, I was obsessed with, uh, with development all through all through high school. Um, it just kind of clicked for me. Uh, one year, I was 15, just had a really, really bad freshman uh, freshman season. And I'd never really taken baseball that seriously up until that point, but something clicked. I was like, I, you know, I really want to see how far I can push this and see, see if I can take it to the next level, not just college. But I said, I mean, if I can play professionally, like I don't see why all these other guys can do it and why I couldn't figure out how to do that as well if if somebody else has done it. Um, So that's kind of where I started from. I started keeping like an online pitching log uh, from that year, kind of all through high school uh, where I was a walk-on University of Maryland, my freshman year, or I guess as a senior, I went to kind of a tryout after graduating from high school uh, and basically was offered a spot on the team. I was then the worst uh, worst player on the team at Maryland my, my freshman year and kind of just slowly built my way up to where I was drafted as a senior, uh, touching 95. I was throwing 73 as a freshman in high school. So anyway, through that entire eight-year journey, uh, long story short, I was keeping this online pitching log on a website called letstalkpitching.com. This is you know, kind of started before Instagram was a thing and uh, there were all these resources out there. Uh, it was really just a couple of resources. It was a few websites, a few gurus, uh, and there was like, two forums. And so this was one of the forums for pitching, letstalkpitching.com. So I basically kept a log for eight years. I was detailing my training process, um, ups and downs. You know, my mechanics started off in a terrible place. I was 155 pounds, six foot three, freshman in high school, didn't know what the hell I was doing, didn't have any money for training, didn't ever have a pitching coach. I was just trying to figure it out the whole, the whole way. And so I kind of developed a little bit of a following through that, but uh, kind of once, once I got through college and was eventually drafted, the people that have been following me for a long time, so dads or you know players who were now in college uh, or in high school and have been following it, started reaching out and saying like, hey, a senior progress followed you for a long time. Could you write a program for my son? Or could you put something together? Could you break down my mechanics? Like, uh, you know, I'll pay you to write me a program, that, that type of thing. Um, so I never really went into, went into it trying to start a remote training company. Uh, it just kind of happened organically where people saw the value and saw that, hey, velocity can be trained, command can be trained. Uh, it is possible to go from someone who, you know, is the, one of the average players on their high school team to, uh, you know, professional pitcher. It doesn't mean it's easy. doesn't mean everyone can do it, but development is possible. There's something here. So that's kind of when the idea began to form. That's around the time I met my, my current business partner. He actually was a, a pitcher at Clemson. He actually dropped out and started the company with me. And so from that point forward, uh, I was in minor league baseball, but at the same time, pretty much every waking hour that I wasn't at the field, that I wasn't kind of handling my own training. And of course, throughout the entire off season as well, that was my sole focus was 
can we actually uh, impact players' careers in a remote fashion? And so the first phase of TREAD, which was really from about 2015 to 2018, we refer to it as our proof, our proof of concept, which was really like, can you improve a player remotely? Can this be done? And so we were building out systems, like how do we, how do, we do this not just, you know, full time with like 20 players and then we just have no, no time. Like, can we actually make a system to where this could scale to 100 players, 200 players, 300 players? At this point in time, we have about 900 athletes that we coach uh, throughout TREAD and that's growing very rapidly uh, at this point. But it was building systems. It was like, A, does this work? And then B, how exactly can we make this so it could scale um, to where we can help and influence the most, most players possible? So a lot of learning, a lot of researching, uh, a lot of figuring out how to set up, you know, the systems and uh, filming hundreds of exercise videos and throwing drills and, uh, you know, figuring out how, how exactly it would work and what level of communication athletes actually need to get better. And it turns out they really just need a plan to follow each day. And when they have questions, they need to be able to reach out and, and ask those questions. But what they actually don't need is someone there every single second of every single rep in the weight room, every single throw they make. You actually, it actually gets you away from over-delivering feedback on every single throw, and you don't need that. You don't need a coach that are watching every rep of your squat form, right? You need to get it right from the start, and if you have a question, you need to be able to ask that question and get a good answer quickly. But athletes don't actually need uh, that immediate uh, feedback. They just need to be able to get their their questions answered when needed, and they want to actually know that they're working on the right things for their specific issue. So we said, hey, well, we can identify what their limiting factors are. We can identify that. We can put them through a full movement screen. We can ask all the questions. We can get their injury history. We can figure out where their mechanical deficiencies are, and we can give them the plan to follow. And then from there, they know exactly what they have to do day to day. And so, again, to your, to your question, we didn't necessarily know how big it could grow. We just knew there was something there. And this was a time when remote training wasn't really a thing. It was just like, it was an unproven, unproven concept. So proof of concept, the first three years, building out all those systems. And then we started to really see like, this isn't just gonna be a, a, you know 50 or hundred players. This is gonna be thousands of players that we can impact over the course of tread. You're kind of touching back on your kind of, your story with the blog and kind of growing up, like not having the resources that we, obviously we do today with as many guys out there that are teaching velocity-based training. So like, what was kind of your thought process going through it? Like you didn't really have anything to base it off of and you're kind of like, I guess you were making your own programming at the time. Yeah. So I went through a whole evolution. Um, you know, obviously what you do is you, you go through and you try to learn from the people who have been there or who are putting out content. So at the time there were, you know, some, a couple names, there was, you know, Steven Ellis was a former major league pitcher who mm -hmm. sold a, a book called tough cuff. And that was all that you could really find out like 10 years ago was tough cuff. And it was a 365 day workout program. So I did that. Uh, you know, I'm not going to, not going to crap on that, but again, that was, it was what you had at the time. Um, you know, you had Paul Nyman putting out some really ahead of his time content, but again, uh, all the pieces weren't exactly there from a nutrition standpoint or from, you know, how do you actually take this theory and then put it into practice? Uh, how do you add the strength training component to it? How do you add the mobility component to it? Right. It was one piece of the puzzle. And so I, I basically looked around and I was like, there are a lot of pieces to this puzzle. And I was trying to find the experts in each field. Um, one big area I knew I needed to work on, for example, was, was gaining weight. I said, all these big league pitchers are like 215 pounds, 205 pounds at my height. I got to figure out how to gain weight. I was always a hard gainer. I couldn't figure that out. 
So who did I look, who did I look to? Logically, I looked to the people that knew nutrition the best. So I was looking to like natural bodybuilding coaches and nutritionists who worked with elite level athletes and reading everything I could possibly find from them. Okay. That's one facet that really influenced what, what tread does that really influenced the nutritional piece is learning from the people who are the very, very best in that specific field. Okay, great. Let's take that. Let's add that to our philosophy. Let's learn from the kind of the physics of pitching, the physics of pitching mechanics. Let's learn a lot from Paul Nyman and maybe bring that perspective into our philosophy. Let's learn everything we can from top weightlifting coaches, top strength coaches in the world and bring that into our philosophy. And so it was trying to gather as much as I can from all these different experts in all these different fields and try to synthesize that. And it's not like I just immediately found these, these answers and miraculously threw harder. Like I had to try to synthesize this stuff and I would write my own programs. I would, you know, have no idea what I was doing. I'd do way too much volume or way too little volume or uh, think I was eating enough food, but I wasn't actually tracking my calories. So I made no progress for like weeks and months on end. Um, my turning point was actually a senior year in high school when I decided like, look, I actually need to hire somebody to help me. So I kind of spun my wheels for like three years from 15 to 17 and my senior year in high school, I actually went ahead and hired a, a strength coach um, who was able to really help me help kind of guide me and condense that that process quite a bit. So at the time, I didn't realize how uh, how important that was. But now I, I really do like looking back, I wish like, what if I had just hired him as a freshman in high school and gotten to the same point I was as a senior in high school as like a sophomore in high school, I would have saved myself two years. Hey, now maybe now I don't have to be a walk-on who like is the worst player on this team as a freshman in college. Maybe I'm actually getting scholarships to, to these colleges instead. Like maybe I'm actually playing Cape Cod League as a freshman in college instead of never playing there and just scraping for innings and eventually being a guy as a senior in college. So time really does become a factor. As, as you know, as, as anyone playing college baseball, or high school baseball knows like time is not on your side. And so if you can, if you can salvage two years of training time because you hired somebody who's been through all these mistakes before worked with hundreds or thousands of players. Like I wish, I, I wish that I had I kind of seen that in front of me when I was younger, but I was just at the point where like, no, I can't afford it. It's too much money. Like whatever. I just didn't, uh, I didn't think to make that investment and there weren't frankly as many options available at the time. So now it's like clear as day that uh, it's start, it starting to be more obvious to players that they need to invest in some sort of training program. And now it's kind of almost the opposite problem where there's so much information out there on social media and everyone's trying to do the same thing. It's like now people don't know who to listen to. Whereas when I was coming up, it was like, there's no one to listen to. There's like two people actually writing about how to, how to throw harder. I feel like there's like, and especially like seeing in college baseball now, like everybody, they, they're wanting to do something and there's still, I feel like there's a lot of athletes that still don't know what to do. And like you said, they don't know who to listen to because they got so much information that's coming in at, I mean, we've all got our phones and a lot of guys are glued to it. So they're seeing all this content and content and content from all these different sources. And it's, it's kind of mind boggling because from going from your side of having nothing to like an athlete like me, there's an abundance and it kind of gets overwhelming. Yeah. You really have to have a framework of, of, how to filter out the BS and like who to listen to. Mm -hmm. And once you have a base level of knowledge, then it becomes really easy. Like once you have a, a decent enough understanding of mechanics, a decent enough understanding of, of how the pieces fit together. And maybe you've thrown at some degree of, uh, of a high level. So maybe mid eighties, upper eighties, if you've 
kind of paid your dues, you can really start to see and kind of separate the, the good information from the bad information. Like for me, I can see somebody put a drill out and like do one rep of that drill and say like, that's complete crap. That doesn't make any sense. That does not correspond to what high level mechanics feel like, uh, how, high, how mechanics function and instantly just like know that. But I also see this, the flip side, like a 15 year old kid who just started his training process, like he's going to fall for that, you know, that marketing for that product. And that's actually going to make him worse biomechanically. And I can prove that that's, that's the case. And so, you know, I see a lot of what I'm doing from a content production standpoint and giving it all out for free uh, as empowering people with that, that base level of knowledge and that base level of information to not fall for a lot of the crap out there. And I don't care if all these people following this stuff ever sign up and work with Tread. Uh, I think we can have, you know, obviously a much greater impact with the, the athletes that we work with directly, but we can have a broad impact on the baseball industry as a whole by putting all this information out for free, by not hiding it behind a paywall, by not forcing athletes to have to sign up with us to gain a lot of the value. And so we put out 99% of our information for free. If I have some epiphany, like I'm like waiting to, to tweet about it. I'm waiting to write an article about it. I'm waiting to make a video about it because I want to share it. And so that's, that's kind of the philosophy behind like how we've grown so fast has actually been by not focusing on, on growth. It's been by focusing on putting out information for free, by trying to figure this stuff out for myself, like kind of selfishly in my own career. Like, how do I figure out how to throw harder? How do I figure out how to fix? You know, I flew open with my front side for like five years and I figured it out. But I, a lot of other guys are dealing with the exact same issue. Or, you know, I've had anterior shoulder pain. I've had two elbow surgeries. I've had two hip surgeries. Like I've had a lot of issues and I literally had to build myself from total scratch. I was 155 pounds. I had to figure all this stuff out myself. And so now it's like, why would you not share this? So tread in many ways is what I wish I had had access to as a 15 year old. It's literally for the 15 year old me. It's trying to take all the different components that go into high performance. You can't just look at it from a velocity training program, like weighted balls. You can't, you can't just look at it like that. You can't just look at the strength component. You can't just look at the nutrition component. You can't just look at the mobility component. You can't just look at the mental side. You have to incorporate all of those pieces and see from a bird's eye view how they all interrelate. And you need a program that incorporates all those variables specific to what you're, what you're looking for. So the 15-year-old me, like he needed first and foremost, someone to come in and explain like calories matter. Here's how to track your nutrition. Uh, here's the relationship between your body weight and your velocity. Here's how to use your back leg. Here's how to keep your front side closed. And here's a responsible throwing program that you can follow. Like if someone just came in and gave me that, I would be throwing 95 as a senior in high school instead of 85. I think it's crazy that you, like, you bring that up with the, like the 15 year old you. And then like, I know for me that right around the, the end of like the beginning of quarantine, I was kind of scrolling through your, on your YouTube page and I found the, the drift video for the first time. And I think now I've probably watched it a hundred times. So right at the beginning and our, our season got shut down, all the facilities are closed. I started watching that video and I was like, kind of like, okay, how can I use this for myself? Cause I was coming off of like a, an elbow injury, like a minor at the time. So I was like, below is down. I was like 84, 86. I was like, okay, I'm going to revamp my mechanics. I'm going to write my own program and nobody else right now can do it. So when I watched that video and in 46 days, I went from 84, 86 to 90, 92. And it's not, I mean, it's like a combination of a, a bunch of things, but it kind of like learning how to 
like feel my body moving in space it was it was unreal and it kind of like it changed the the whole aspect of what I was going to do with my career talk, talk a little bit about the the drift aspect like your learning process with the drift because it's, it's so, one of those things where usually it's not like it clicks the first time somebody tries it there's it's learning to like trust this forward move where you're like mm -hmm. no longer like perfectly balanced it's trust it's like you're throwing yourself down the mound basically and trusting that you're going to be able to catch your catch your backside off, out of the drift like talk talk through your learning experience with that i'm interested so for the longest time i could like i couldn't feel it out of the stretch so out of the wind up what i would do is i would take a step back and almost kind of like how uh, trevor bauer used to be where he would take his knees and his chest forward first and then I would sit into my hinge going down the mound. Like I would, it'd be almost like a two-step movement. Like I'd be yep. forward and then turning sideways. Yep. And so I, I refer to that as the seesaw, uh, okay. seesaw effect, because that, that's what it feels like. Like it's, it's impossible to have this conversation have you, if you haven't felt it, right? Yeah. Like I could never have a conversation about the drift hadn't, having not felt it. So again, that's like when someone is talking about this stuff and has never like thrown over 80 I'm like, well, it's difficult to have that conversation if you haven't felt it. But when you have, it's like you're on the exact same wavelength. So the seesaw is my like way of trying to explain that feeling to someone. It's, like you're, floating, you're floating through the leg lift and then you're like in, in move forward mode. And then you shift into stay back mode. You shift into your backside and your back mm -hmm. leg actually accepts that weight. So what you're describing right there, like it's a two piece thing. You get going forward. Trevor Bauer is a good example. He gets going forward. He's floating through that, dan that dance move, that drift. And then he hits, he drops into his backside and it's yeah. like moving forward, staying back mode. And now he's riding that backside as long as he can down the mound. And I did it like a, it was a pretty quick move. Like I would, I'm pretty, temp, pretty quick tempo guy. And it really created a lot of deception for me too. Like on top of being left-handed and I would just go through it. And like the first time I threw in game with it, it was like the first time my guy'd ever sat 1992. And I was like, what is going on? I just felt so much freer with my delivery. And then now I've had a lot of time since I had, I had TJ March 26. So I've had a lot of time to try to figure out the movement out of the stretch. And now it almost feels awkward being in the windup because I've gotten so used to it. Gotcha. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I, one phenomenon I've noticed with the drift is that there, so there is such a thing as overdrifting, right? If you, mm -hmm. if you get too much forward momentum, you actually lose the backside and you just, you feel like you're falling. But yeah. obviously, if you don't drift at all and you're in like you're stuck over the rubber in this balance point position, so there's this this ideal amount of weight shift where it's just enough to get the get the train moving, but not so much that you're just falling forward and you like completely lose the backside. So for me, a really helpful tip, and I'm sure you've already tried this, but walking windups actually help me like find the ideal amount because mm -hmm. if I go way too aggressive into that step, stepping in from behind, then I just fall forward and. Yeah. So it kind of, it forces me to like reel it into that like ideal window. Yeah, it's the content that like, I always get excited because I've got the bell turned on on YouTube. So like, and I, I see like all the, <laughs> when the new videos roll out, uh, it's like, it's like a little look on Christmas. I'm like, oh, what can I learn now? <laughs> but, and I'm sure it's yeah. like that for a, a lot of people. And for, I know a lot of guys listening now and because I got the, shit i got the newsletter 30 minutes ago you guys are rolling out your thing what calling it content content tober yeah so uh the story behind content tober is uh 
I guess you would call me like the content creator, the, the head content producer at Tread, but obviously I've, I've been doing way more behind the scenes than just filming videos. Like if all I was doing is making videos, we'd be putting out five videos a week. So it's kind of been this friction point in the entire lifespan of Tread, like from 2015 on, it's like, if I could just focus on, on content, like, you know, I could be pumping out so much more. And, and for me, that's, that's like my passion. That's what I'm, that's what I want to be doing with Tread is like educating and, and putting out really good stuff for free. Um, but because there's so much that goes on behind the scenes with building the systems and actually coaching the athletes and all this stuff, we really hadn't gotten to the point and, and even having like, uh, you know, we have a content team now. So we have a video, uh, video editor uh, and we also have a social media coordinator who kind of help put this stuff together, edit the videos in the back end, help splice it up for different platforms and actually post the content. Um, we finally got that kind of got that system down to where last October we were like, okay, I think we're in a place to actually just go all in on content. Can we post twice a day for all of October and actually make it all good stuff consistently? So that was like our push last October. So we called it content over just because we thought that was, you know, a catchy name. That was our push to see if we could actually sustain that. And the plan was like, do it for October and like go back down to one post a day after that. But we were, that actually pushed us into now where we've been sustaining that to, uh, you know, it's not all YouTube videos, but we've been sustaining two posts a day indefinitely since that point last year. So really content over was like the start of, uh, kind of the content uh, rush that we've had over the past year. Kind of going off that, the videos that you do put out on YouTube and the shorts on Twitter, what is that? What's kind of like the drive behind that? Is it your remote clients, your in-house clients, like seeing like what they're struggling with or what they're not performing efficiently causing you to make these types of videos? Yeah. So most of, most of it is. So like I can go through the list of athletes that I'm, that I'm coaching at any given time and, I have like five things to talk about for each of them because they all have completely unique issues that they're focusing on, right? Like uh, one big leaguer I'm thinking about, like his problem was actually the drift. He drifted really well in college. He was a high draft pick. And as soon as he got signed, they started taking that away. And so that, that's something that I've talked about and, you know, needed to figure out how to, how to regain that after he lost it. Um, you know, going down the list, like every, every guy has their own specific issues. Right. And so I'm on the back end, like you're problem solving with this specific guy you know, you're writing programming, you're seeing how it works. So we're constantly learning on the back end. And again, it's not just me, it's all of our coaches are learning at the same time and we're all sharing what we're learning with each other. So it's like this group think mechanism where we're all just learning at this rapidly exponentially increasing rate from each other uh, because, of, because of all the number, the number of athletes that we're coaching, learning from, and then sharing with each other. So it's, it's just really cool phenomenon now where I'm learning as much from our coaches and from what they're experimenting with as they're learning from me. Um, so that's one thing. And then also just, I like to watch pitchers and break down mechanics and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, kind of apply that to myself and my, my own situation. And so I'll just have ideas. I'll be like, I'll be training and I'll have this random idea come to me and I'll just like pick up a physio ball and like start working on like a feel. And then I'm like, Oh, that feels, that feels like, right. Like that's, that's what it feels like um, to drop into your hinge, for example. And so that becomes like, that becomes a tweet. Like, Hey, here's something to try. Here's how you do it. Here's the cues. So I'll just have random like bursts of inspiration that way. Or if I'm like, I need content for today. I'm literally going through and thinking about the different athletes that I work with and that I've worked with in the past, what's worked for them and like what little nugget I can share. 
So it doesn't always, I used to have this, this kind of uh, feeling that everything I needed to post needed to be like a complete comprehensive guide of some sort. Right. But now it's much more like, it just needs to be a nugget. Like people just want something to try. They, they want some little explanation, some little nugget to learn from. It doesn't have to be a comprehensive guide. If they want the comprehensive guide, they can reach out, they can email us. So kind of going off that with the, just like you constantly like thinking and finding out things like through your training, what's like, what's a big thing in the assessment process that you, that you see kind of across the board that you kind of look for? So that's kind of a tough question to answer immediately because it really, it really depends is the answer. Yeah. Um, so we look at about 30 different things in our, in our assessment process from, you know, the ankles to tibial rotation to, uh, you know, hip flexion, extension, hip internal rotation, hip external rotation, uh, you know, overall single leg stability. Uh, we look at the, the foot fu uh, function and structure. Um, you know, we're looking at T-spine rotation, uh, T-spine extension. Uh, we're looking at posture. So we're looking at spinal posture. We're looking at cervical positioning. Uh, we're looking at the shoulder. We're looking at, is there symmetry side to side with their scapula, their internal rotation side to side. So we really are assessing the entire body from head to toe, um, not just, just a gross movement, but also can you control that movement? Uh, not just that, but what is the actual tissue quality that you're dealing with here? There's some really important areas that, uh, you know, can, can commonly be impacted by poor tissue quality. So like a lot of throwers don't realize Hey, if your pec is super toned up and dense and it hurts to squeeze, well, those are the same guys that can't get their arm back behind their body. Their arm gets stuck here and then they can't get laid back. And it's because their pec is a horizontal adductor and internal rotator of the shoulder. And so if this is tight, you actually can't get your arm back in these loose positions like you need to for it to actually work like an arm. Uh, that's just one example, right? Pec is one example, pec minor, pec major. If your lat is super tight and toned up, that creates its own. All, you know, whole host of issues. If your subscap is super toned up, a lot of those guys have impingement symptoms. It negatively affects the mechanics of the joint. So like we're one of the few places that I've seen that actually tests tissue quality as well in our assessment. But that is, a, that is a total game changer. If you give athletes a way to actually work on their tissue quality on their own, it's really unrealistic when coaches say, just go get manual therapy. Well, I, I didn't have like 75 bucks an hour to spend on manual therapy like twice a week. So that's the one reason a guy like Kelly Sturette, if you, who you've probably heard of, gained so much popularity. It's like he could pick out a body part for someone who's in pain and make a video on some things they could try on their own to actually address that. So he really did popularize in many ways uh, the importance of taking care of your own tissue quality on yourself. Self-myofascial release is just making sure that your tissues are working the way they need to. And so we're looking at all that stuff head to toe in particular, focusing on the things that are relevant for pitchers. Um, I couldn't tell you like what's more important than something else. I mean, hip rotation is an important piece. Thoracic rotation, if you don't have good thoracic rotation, if, you're, if your spine is just a, a plank, like you're not gonna throw hard, I can tell you that. If you have very limited external rotation at your shoulder, you're not gonna throw hard. So there are like some very basic prerequisites to throwing hard, but we have, we have tight movers that throw 98. We have very mobile, loose movers that throw 98. So it's not necessarily a death sentence uh, to a guy being able to throw hard. We just try to understand how they move and where we can intervene to optimize that. You guys use motion capture as well? So that's very difficult with, with the remote training model. 
Uh, right. They're really, as, as far as I'm aware, and having talked to some kind of experts in the field, there is not a really good option right now for us uh, to use in the, in the remote sense. Um, some people might disagree with that, but again, from my experience, having tested some different options, uh, that really isn't, there really isn't a good option right now for us, uh, in our opinion. In-house, kind of the same thing. Um, so we are kind of, I'll keep you posted on that. We, are, we do have intentions of having a motion capture solution in-house when athletes do come in, come in to visit. At this point in time, we're kind of waiting, researching, trying to find what the best fit for our guys would be. Um, now, I kind of like to, when someone asks me about motion capture, I kind of like to put it in perspective where there's really three different pieces of fixing someone's mechanics. One is looking at the mechanics and identifying what the, what the huge long list of issues are, right? There might be 12 different things that you see that are potential issues. That's what motion capture does. It just identifies the gross issues. In my opinion, that's by far the easiest thing to do if you know what you're looking for. Identifying the, the issues saying, okay, your elbow's low or you're, you're about to hit yourself in the ear because you have so much elbow flexion, right? Like to me, that's the easy part is identifying the potential issues. The, that's easy difficulty. Moderate difficulty, next step is being able to figure out what are the causes and what are the effects. So, okay, this guy gets uh, early extension off the back leg, his heel comes off the rubber, um, you know, his lead leg kind of collapses, he flies open with the front shoulder, uh, his glove arm turns open early, he gets no layback. Like there might be a bunch of issues. How do you figure out what's causing what and what's just a downstream effect? That's the, that's the second most difficult piece. Motion capture doesn't do that. Again, motion capture is a great tool, but what I'm seeing as the lacking piece is that athletes will come and they'll show us their motion capture reports. And we say like, well, what did you do from there? Like, what, what were you told? And they're like, oh, I'm just given the same three drills, same four drills as everyone else. Okay, so what was the point then? If right. all they did was tell you what your problem was, you already knew what your problem was. What you actually need is to figure out what is the, what is the cause and what are the, down, the downstream symptoms? What do I actually need to do to fix it? So that's step three is actually fixing the problem is the, by far the most complex and most difficult piece. So identifying the problems, ordering the problems in terms of causes and effects and actually fixing the problem. That is where the actual money is made. That's the, that's the bread and butter is we spend most of our time focusing on actually fixing those problems. If you have an athlete that's flying open, how do you actually fix that? It's not as simple as giving them a drill in most cases. Right. We appreciate you listening to Bullpen Chatter, hosted by Ian McMahon. As a token of our appreciation, we'd like to give you 10% off all Clean Fuego products to help you spin it like a pro. Use code McMahon10 at checkout and shout them out on social media. And tell them Ian sent you. Do you, uh, do you guys see a difference in, like, I don't want to call it like a, I don't want to say this, like a, like a, the gap between, like, where you get, like, a dead kind of stop and growth with guys with higher training ages? And then newer guys. Um, from a from a training standpoint, like from a, from a weight training standpoint, or just on, on standpoint, throw, like on a throwing side, yeah. So, a hundred percent, it's harder to go from ninety five to one hundred than it is to go from like sixty five to seventy miles an hour. So every mm -hmm. every mile per hour gets exponentially more difficult to squeeze out. But at, by that same token, like. If a, if a pro who's throwing 92 comes to us, they're not expecting us to get them six miles an hour in three months, right? Like they're like, if I can just sit 
93-94 next year, like I don't get cut. Right. So whereas like the the high school JV player wants to go from 65 to 80 in a year. And that might actually be realistic after we assess him and we, we take a look at his training history and his training age. But absolutely, there's a point of diminishing returns. And we do our best to explain that and make sure guys have realistic expectations of, of what's possible. Right? When someone comes to us and says, I want to gain 10 miles an hour in two weeks because I saw an Instagram video from this other guy over here and he said it's possible. And we're like, well, that first throw was a warm-up throw. And then he had the guy actually throw hard. And then he said he gained 10 miles an hour in five minutes. And that's what's actually happening there. That's very unrealistic. So we, we try to give guys realistic expectations. You can make ridiculous gains for untrained athletes in high school. Um, it happens in college. It's less common unless there's a huge limiting factor that we uncover. And that does happen sometimes. And it's crazy when that does happen because we, we had a guy last year, Rohan Honda, went from 84, 86 to 94, 97, right? Like that does happen. But it's because he had a crazy number of limiting factors that were all kind of addressed at once. Like it was the perfect storm of limiting factors. He was a guy who should have been already throwing 93, 92. And he it was just being suppressed because he had all these issues. And instantly, once you fix those issues, he starts actually throwing like the thrower he was supposed to be. So did he uh during having a jump that big, did he see any like health, like arm health, like decrease or like was he able to maintain it and like stay up with it as far as arm health yeah like because that's a, i mean that's a really big jump and i feel like that's a, yeah so that, that was over about a year year and a half okay. uh period yeah. um it, you're right to be kind of nervous about that because it it is a significantly higher level of stress uh to go from like 84 to 97 and that that is something we've seen in the past in uh, rohan's case uh, not not so much. He was able to sustain that that jump, um, but when you suddenly unlock a bunch of velocity, this is especially true when, uh, let's say, it's a guy with really limited layback, and suddenly you open up their their chest, you open up their subscap, you open up their subclavius. Uh, suddenly, their arm is getting into much better positions. They see a velocity jump. Um, you can sometimes see injuries uh, arise from that because what was actually happening before is that they were their body was kind of protecting against some prior injury. So we've seen it where guys come to us they're like really really pushy they're really pushy with their arm action they're not getting into good positions they're like oh i had it i had it like a ucl sprain two years ago but that hasn't bothered me since but i haven't really thrown hard since then and if you go and you just open up that range of motion their vela will jump right back to where it should be and then a month or two later they'll say oh my my ligament doesn't feel good like i'm having some pain in, in external rotation because you just uncover the layers and now the prior injury, the prior instability that they were compensating around is now being exposed because you actually made their patterns more efficient. So that, that is something to, to watch out for is these is very large velo increases, uh, whether it's in that scenario or otherwise, it does take time for the tissues to, to adjust and adapt in, in a regular scenario too. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to say it's like completely like what happened to me, but it was, kind of similar where like I had had some like UCL problems before and it ended up getting misdiagnosed where they said I didn't have a torn UCL and then I found out this last year when he had new MRI he when my surgeon wanted to review the old MRI and he's like dude this thing's been torn for a year and it's torn in two other places and eventually it was like the last time I threw was March 8th in a game and the UCL tore off the bone 
it was bad. gotcha so they missed it the first time because it was very just a very slight tear and then it got worse over time yeah so the the one that he missed like was like you said a slight tear and then i ended up having two other tears as well as it coming off the bone were you throwing through pain the, the whole time even through that he, I, some days yes but like it wasn't like anything where it's like okay i should i should definitely just stop and drop like i would have more days to like I would have days where I'd be like 85, 87, and then say I go back in on on, on Saturday and I'll be 89, 91. I feel like I was like certain days I would have more mobility than others to be able to like to be able to throw hard and then like and it wouldn't always hurt was the thing and that was the confusing part. But like I would have days where like I'd have like mid 80s and and I'd also have days where I'd be 90, 92. When it did hurt, would would it be a sharp like sharp pain immediately, or or was it just kind of random aching and? It'd be kind of like random, and like there okay. there were some days like it was, like I couldn't like name like one throw where I was like oh shoot okay that was it, until eventually the last one I I felt it come off the bone that was that was rough. So that that was that was this March. Yeah. So you got Tommy John, uh, in April or what or what? I got it. So injury, I guess the second injury was March 8th. I got surgery March 26th. Gotcha. Okay. So you're, what is that? Seven months, seven months out now? Almost seven. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And that's, it's actually not that uncommon of a, of a scenario when it comes to, to UCL sprains. I don't want to get too off topic, but I mean, people listening, it could be relevant. Um, so I had a UCL primary repair in 2017. Um, it's actually very common when the UCL sprain is not significantly advanced enough. If it's, if it's a minor one, it either won't show up on the MRI or unless someone really knows what they're looking for, they're going to say like, Oh, you're fine. You're like, I'm not fine. Like I have sharp pain here. Like when I throw over 80%, like something's going on or like, so in my case, nothing showed up on the MRI. They, they said I was fine. Um, so I did some more digging. And in, in my case, what did actually diagnose a tear was getting what's called a diagnostic ultrasound. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. So a diagnostic ultrasound is a, is a second way to confirm if there is or isn't a UCL tear. Uh, it's not just for elbows, like it's, it's ultrasound. So it's like what they use with, with pregnant women. Um, they basically put the ultrasound machine or the ultrasound uh, head on your ligament and it's reading out to a, to a screen. And so they can literally see a live feed of your ligament. And so from there, they can do a couple of things. They can measure the thickness of the ligament. They can measure the, you know, the length and surface area of the ligament. But what they do is they come in and they actually do a valgus test. So they take your elbow and they actually put stress, they stress the ligament. And while they're stressing the ligament, they have it basically on a live feed. And so what they can do is they can measure the gapping in the joint. They can see how well that ligament actually did at, uh, at stabilizing the joint. So if you have a torn UCL, well, A, it might just show up as torn, but it probably didn't if you had a negative MRI. So what they'll do is they'll measure the gapping in the elbow. So when you go into, into valgus stress, that joint gaps, opens up. Now, if you have a healthy ligament, it only opens up so much. And if you have a really unhealthy, unstable ligament, it'll open up more. So they can actually measure the gapping in the joint as they apply that stress. So literally on the screen, they'll go and they'll take the cursor and they can like measure how much that ligament gapped and they know past a certain amount that you have you have an instability, which implies a tear. And so that's how mine was actually diagnosed is with a diagnostic ultrasound. And I've talked to a ton of athletes who've been in the exact same situation. My MRI came back clean, but I have like a positive valgus stress test. 
and you know pretty much a negative on every flexor strain test you could you could think of. Doesn't hurt to grip things. Doesn't hurt to uh, pronate into something. Um, so everything is pointing to a UCL sprain except they have an MRI that's negative. And so again, that's while we're kind of going off that while we're on this topic of TJ. Why do you think Tommy John is becoming more common? I think there's a bunch of reasons, right? It's, it's a hard question to answer. Uh, obviously, the surgery, uh, surgery success rate uh, is very high. And so more people know about it. And so mm -hmm. if there is an issue, like people are more comfortable in general getting that surgery. Uh, I think it's somewhere in the, in the range of 88 to 95%, depending on the study you look at, uh, success rate. So very, very high success rate, especially if someone's diligent with the rehab and people know that and they're, they're more comfortable now with that. Um, obviously, that's just a piece of it, though. Uh, athletes are throwing harder in general. Uh, at throwing harder, that's undebatable. And so all else equal, if you're throwing harder, that's going to be more, more stress on the joint, more torque on the joint. Um, so that is a risk factor as well. Um, I, I do think that velocity training programs have gotten somewhat irresponsible in certain cases, um, we take a very, uh, very cautious approach, very conservative approach to the volume of the throws that we do when a guy is in a velocity phase, uh, because we are aware that, you know, fatigue is a huge risk factor for injury. And if you give guys ridiculous workloads and you tell them to just throw as hard as they possibly can with these like five different colored balls and just fall on your, just run as far as you can across the gym and then fall on your face and like grunt and shout and do like 50 throws do that three times a week, right? You're kind of just begging for something to get injured at that point. Um, so there are some irresponsible coaches out there who are well-intentioned, well but they think that it's just as simple as giving guys a few drills, uh, doing some running guns and grunting and then holding up a radar gun. And so, you know, I think that's kind of a shame. And again, going back to the content thing, my job is to, to try to educate and share my experience and, you know, in our experience, we've seen you can really get a lot of the benefits of a velocity training program without needing to take on such an elevated risk in the workload in those programs. So not all our guys do pull downs, not all our guys do uh, do weighted balls. Some of our guys are just throwing five ounce, you know, high intensity bullpens off the mound, right? Like that's what they're comfortable with. That's kind of the risk level they're willing to take. Even the guys that are willing to take uh, you know, I wouldn't say take a risk because it's very low risk, but who, who we do assign a weighted ball uh, velocity phase to, those phases are periodized. So they've been progressively on ramp to there. They have a strength base. We've already addressed any major red flag mechanical issues uh, that we might be concerned about. And even then, most of those guys are doing true velocity testing once per week. And it's about 12 to 15 max effort throws. And then the other day of the week, will be kind of 85 to 90% effort day. Again, maybe 15 to 25 higher effort throws, but that's not even game intensity throws. Some of our guys will do two velo days a week, but again, the total number of throws is way down compared to some of the other programs I'm seeing, like 70% lower. And what you see is you still see the same velo gains or better. So our approach is we actually trying to squeeze out as much velocity as we can from just improving the way a pitcher moves, improving their nutrition, improving their strength, improving their power, you can get it indirectly from addressing all these other factors. And what you find is that it's actually a much more sustainable velocity increase that they get versus ignoring all of that, giving them some weighted balls and just telling them to throw as hard as they can. They might see a two or three mile an hour increase. That's simply from them 
learning to apply more effort into the into the throw, but they're still dealing with the mechanical flaws they had before. Weighted balls don't magically fix your mechanics. They just take whatever dysfunctional set of mechanics you already had, and you're just layering intensity on top of them. What we do is we take a step back. We try to fix whatever dysfunctional mechanical patterns you already had, build you up into a better athlete with better patterns. And then the weighted balls are that next final layer. It's like the icing on the cake after you've actually taken a step back, built your foundation. Now you add that on in a responsible way on top of that. So that's, that's how we look at weighted balls. Um, again, it's a multi, multifaceted question why TJs are rising. But you just have more and more guys that are aware that velocity is what it's going to take to play at the next level, and they're 100% right because that's how guys are being evaluated. I'm not saying command doesn't matter, but velocity, you 100% are not going to be drafted if you don't throw 88. And guys realize that. Right? You have to be a submarine guy like to get drafted throwing under 88. So guys realize that. They're pushing the envelope. I think that's okay. That's part of sports. But can we mitigate those risk factors as much as possible? And that's what our attempt is, is with our program. Kind of leading into that velo versus command. What's a how do you how do you train command? Because I mean that seems to be a really big question across social media, especially with a lot of the older generation on social media. Yeah. So. So, I, I know the the question's kind of getting at like when do you train velo? When do you train command? When you are yeah. training command, like what which is more important? How do you train that? Um, I think it's it's worth realizing like. Both are important. So the whole, like, it's like a false dichotomy when people say like, well, is it velo or command? Well, okay, let's take Max Scherzer. Like if you took Max Scherzer and dropped his average velo to 88, is he Max Scherzer? No. What if you took Max Scherzer and you dropped his command to where he like was suddenly walking seven batters per nine? Is he Max Scherzer? No. So like you need both. If you want to truly max out your potential as a pitcher, you need the pitchability aspect and you need good stuff. It's not saying that you can't get to the big leagues or you can't maximize your potential with average stuff. You're just really stacking the stacking the, the deck against you. And, uh, you know, you're just really, it, the, the chances are not good if you have below average stuff for the level you're trying to play at. So let's max out your stuff. Let's max out your command. Let's max out everything we can. So we kind of look at it in a, in a, how do we, how do we periodize it over the course of the off season? Like if a guy needs to, really focus on velocity, that's his limiting factor. We're probably going to allocate more of, the, more of his off-season training time to that specific factor. Now, if he's a guy who already throws hard and he can't throw strikes, there's no reason to spend his entire off-season working on velocity. That's a guy we need to spend time working on his limiting factors. So, command, uh, I've done a video on this, which you can link in the show notes, uh, kind of five tips for command. Uh, there's a mechanical component. So, absolutely, if your arm is like way down here at landing if your arm isn't is way out of plane with with the rotation of where your shoulders are are rotating if your arm is like completely out of that position or lagging way behind um, any sort of gross mechanical factor uh, is going to affect command because it can affect the, the repeatability of what you're doing um, the most uh, the low hanging fruit mechanically is just the direction of the lower half like not to sound like a super old school coach who just like yells direction at you but in my, like in my career, that was by far the biggest uh, unlock because I did struggle with the ability to throw strikes. And as soon as I just learned how to actually guide my lower half forward towards the target with my back leg versus just lifting my leg and immediately opening up, as soon as I learned that directional component, and I can probably demonstrate kind of what I'm talking about here, but as soon as I learned 
to not just lift my leg and immediately open up, lift my leg and actually have a directional component where my pelvis was being guided towards the target by my back leg. My ability to, to not just throw strikes, but completely eliminated this, this like high in arm side and this low in glove side uh, missing phenomenon. So I would definitely say addressing the directionality of one's mechanics is super low hanging fruit that is worth testing. It's not like, it's not like you have to do that with every single player for it to be effective. Like Jake Arrieta is a good example of a pitcher who is more of a cross body guy and it works for him. But in the vast majority of cases, if you can get your direction going towards the target, then the pelvic rotation happens towards the target. The torso rotation happens kind of in line with the target. The arm follows what the torso is doing and everything just syncs up in this plane and finishes through to the target versus just basically just like gripping and ripping and you just become really rotational. So I like to explain that with uh, kind of one of Paul Nyman's uh, analogies, um, which is there's three different components to, to the throw, like three different planes, basically. Uh, he calls it flatbed, like a truck. That's, that's the linear component. Uh, merry-go-round, that's the rotational component. And Ferris wheel, that's also the rotational component, but that's like the north-south rotation. So Ferris wheel, think like, uh, Ferris wheel, think like a, like a Tim Linscombe like very high arm slot guy, merry-go-round, think like Randy Johnson. They have a lot of uh, transverse rotation. And then flatbed, that's the linear move. That's a really good linear uh, backside driven uh, lower half. So you need a blend of all three. There's a linear component and there's rotational components. Um, where, how would it be easier to throw a strike? Like if you, were, if you were sitting on a truck and the truck was driving right at the target and you just had to throw a ball at a target while you were driving right towards it. Right. That wouldn't be that difficult. But if you were on a merry-go-round, you're sitting on a merry-go-round, you're going all around the merry-go-round. And when you get to that point and you try to release the ball at the perfect time and you're trying to somehow hit that target, that's, that's really difficult. So that's effectively what is happening if you don't have that linear component to the throw. The linear component is what gives you that, that direction and gives you that consistent. I'm not saying don't rotate. You want to rotate violently. But that rotation has to have a directional component to it. Uh, for any sort of consistency whatsoever. So mechanically, mentally, uh, it's really difficult if you don't have mental routines to compete and throw strikes. I was a guy who didn't figure out the back leg thing and the, the direction for a long time, like till my senior year, just before my senior year of college. Because when I figured that out, I also got a velocity bump from that. The only way, way I was able to even compete and throw strikes with how bad my mechanics were was because I had... Uh, I had the mental side. I was reasonably good at. I think that's the biggest one. Exactly, and and I'm not saying I've mastered the mental side by any means, but like that was what I could lean on and rely on to throw strikes, even when my mechanics were in this constant state of flux, and I was like basically in the Superdome all the time. Like every every practice, I was like trying to throw like a different pitcher, or like the pitching coach would change my leg lift this day, and he would change it back the next day, or we'd shift over on the rubber the next day. So I was in this like huge state of flux where I was trying to figure stuff out and none of it felt right, but I would still be able to go into like an inner squad or a game and find a way to compete well enough. And so a lot of athletes just have never been sat down and explained what routines are, which to me, that's the most important part of the mental game. Like that's the lowest hanging fruit part of the mental game. Pre-game routine, 
uh, pre and intra inning routine. And to me, the most important of all pre pitch routine, uh, the pre pitch routine, the way I like to describe it to guys is, okay, how do you, how do you consistently throw strikes? You need a consistent delivery, which means you're going to ultimately have a consistent release point uh, to have any sort of chance of consistently throwing the ball where you want in the zone. Okay. How do you do that? Because pitching is such a complex movement. There's, if you, if you ever like taken a, a course or watch anything on like uh, motor learning uh, theory and degrees of freedom, like there are an infinite number of ways to, to throw a ball and no two pitches that you ever throw will be exactly identical ever because there's so much going on. Like if you perfectly overlaid like two of Clayton Kershaw's fastballs, they might look close, but they're not identical and you can't ever have two movements that are exactly identical. So how the hell do you, like, how do you even do that in the first place? So it's, it's, a very, it's a very difficult thing. Well, the way that you give yourself the best chance to do that is by having a consistent mental approach. Your, your mind is what ultimately plans the movement and controls, uh, controls the, the movement, controls the, the actual action, the pitch. So if you have a consistent mental state, you have the best chance to have a consistent physical state and have a consistent set of mechanics, consistent release point, consistently control the, control the zone. So you think about like a free throw shooter who like, what do the best free throw shooters have? They have the exact same routine every single time, every single time. And that's just drilled into the culture of basketball because there's no other way to do it. Like they, you find out right away, like I'm going to shoot 30% at the line, at the free throw line if I don't have a routine. And so they figure that out very easily that that is, that's what it takes. But at so many levels, I mean, the, the higher level college, like D1 level, like most pitching coaches understand the importance, but it just really is underutilized how important having a pre-pitch routine is. But coaches will come yell at the pitcher, like, why, why can't you throw strikes? Well, have you given them, a, given them this skill set to have a pre-pitch routine, to have a pre- and inter-inning routine, to have a pre-game routine so that they can actually tap into this consistent mental state when they're on the mound? So here's, uh, here's like a quick tip that guys can implement to work on their routines daily. You're going to take five minutes. You're going to throw a simulated inning. So you're going to just hop on the mound. You're not actually going to be throwing, but it's basically just going to be, if you ever watched Clayton Kershaw before a game, you see him, he's doing dry reps. He's doing mental reps on the mound. Max Scherzer does the same thing. You're going to tow the rubber. You're going to get the, get the sign from the catcher. The catcher's not there. You're imagining the catcher's there. You're getting a sign. You're coming set. You're taking a deep breath or whatever in your routine. Your routine is going to be specific to you, but find your spot on the rubber, get the sign, come set, deep breath. When you take the deep breath, you have some keyword like attack or, you know, F this guy or, or whatever. You have your keyword, come set, deliver the pitch. You don't have to do a full throw, but leg lift, deliver the pitch, do a dry rep. Visualize where that pitch went, catch the ball from the catcher, go back to the rubber. Okay, 1-0 count or 0-1 count. What did he, okay, so you go through an entire simulated inning. If you have a bad rep, maybe you call a triple. And so now in your mind, you have to work holds with a runner on third or a runner on second base. And so you just go through this mental routine in your mind where you're getting so comfortable executing your routine every single day. And that's all it takes. It's five minutes. You do your 15, 15 pitches but you're completely focused, completely engaged uh, the entire time. So five minutes a day, pre-pitch routine. Um, 
that's probably the lowest hanging fruit when it comes to command and being able to repeat your mechanics in game. Um, and the, the one other thing as well is having a what's called red light routine. I, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just like it's never going to go your way. Like you're going to you can execute a pitch. You're going to give up the double. You're going to or you might walk a batter, walk two batters. You're going to get to that point where the game speeds up on you. Like, what do you do? And a lot of pitchers don't have an they, they don't have a pre-planned answer to that. You need a pre-planned answer to that. When this happens, which it will happen because it's just how baseball is, step off the mound, pick a spot on the bottom left of the scoreboard, something that's going to be in every single stadium you play in, whether it's home or an away game. Again, we always thank you for listening. And if you always wanted to have your pitch metrics in the palm of your hand, well, now you can. Check out the show notes for a link of discounts for PitchLogic Smart Baseball, created by F5 Sports. Taking 20 seconds to clear my head, or I'm walking around the mound, I'm not going to turn back and step on that mound until my mind is clear. Right. I'm literally not going to face the batter until I'm ready, until I'm ready to go. And so having that pre-rehearsed and pre-recorded in your mind and practiced, so when it does happen, you can actually access that benefit, which is the mind-clearing effect, flushing what just happened, and getting back into that OO, uh, OO count mode, where it's 0 3-1-2, you should have the exact same mental state. doesn't mean you're pitching to the guy the same, but it means your mental state, the, the mental clarity aspect should be the exact same. So, a, a big thing I really like it, what you said was it, it's going to be different for every guy because same thing in training, same thing in life. Like not everybody's going to be the same or have that same comeback. What do you, what do you think? Like, how do you think kids should approach say like their coach, they don't have a, like a pre-pitch routine or like, how does a kid approach somebody and kind of ask those questions or try to figure it out within their program. So like, like in your case, like as a college pitcher, like how do you, how do you have that conversation with, with the college coach? Yeah. I don't think any college pitching coach in the country would be opposed to someone saying like, I want to work on the mental game more. Can you give me oh, some resources yeah. or are you okay with me doing some mental reps? Like, you know, it's, it's different story. If you're like, can I go bring a velo? Can I, can I bring a radar gun to my bullpen? Like a lot of college coaches would be, upset about that but if you if you really want to get better at something like realize that practice is is just the baseline and what's going to what's going to put you above and beyond what the rest of your teammates are doing because by definition if you're like if let's say you're a d2 like college pitcher and you want to go play professionally well by definition that means you are the best player on your team like you're an outlier in your in your division so if all you're doing is the same thing as everyone else on your team, like the chances are you're probably not going to get there unless you're the genetic freak on the team, which you probably aren't. So how are you going to get there? That's what happens outside of practice. That's what happens on your own research. Don't trust your coach to give you and spoon feed you all the answers. If you want to learn about the mental game, go find the top three mental game books, buy them and read them. Like go, go research, go research that stuff. Was that a big thing for you and fought throughout your career? So I wasn't introduced to the mental game until I got to college and it just like opened up that, that whole new world of like, Oh, this would have been so helpful to have in high school when I was pitching because then you're not, you're not emotional and you're not, not reactionary uh, in how you respond to, to situations. You realize that like, Oh, I actually, this actually is something I can control. Your mind can be controlled. Your thoughts can be controlled. Uh, I, I know Alan Jager pretty well. He's really big into meditation for learning to control the mind in that way. 
Uh, I don't meditate as much as I probably should, but I can say that I've never, I've never meditated and not felt more clarity and not felt more calm after doing that. So that is a phenomenal tool, especially to use in season at the very least to use in season before like a start before an outing. So at the very least do it the 15 times a year as part of your pregame routine. If you're a starting pitcher, even if you're not going to put it into your daily routine year round. I think a lot of the, the mental side, especially like with younger guys going through college baseball and now just being around, even though with, with COVID being around older guys, I, th- I feel like the mental game is can be like more defined as like a growing up period, like throughout your career, you're starting to understand more and the, the more you're out on the field, like the less that you're going to be surprised by the game per se, because like you've, you've seen it over and over and over and you're able to slow it down. And I, don't know, I feel like it's a growing up process. So I feel like it yeah, there's, there's a, there's a comfort level. There's a comfort level with knowing you've been there before. Um, I can kind of relate to my, my first college outing. I, I was a freshman, uh, again, worst player on the team, um, but I got a mop up inning that first series of the year, which was an away, away series at Texas. And so I go from like playing in a crappy high school conference, facing kids that like weren't going to play in college. Um, and now I'm pitching against Texas as a freshman throwing, I was throwing like 83 at the time, 83, 85. Um, and so, you know, went out there, like, you know, was it pretty much in over my head, like from a mental side, obviously from a stuff side too, but like from a mental side, I like was just in over my head. The game was, that's the most the game has ever sped up on me. And like you said, it's, it's a growing up process. Like by my senior year, you've been in those situations uh, enough. You know what to expect. It no longer has that, uh, that you might still get some adrenaline, but it no longer has that kind of anxiety producing effect uh, from like the very first college outing you ever have. Right. So you kind of just have to get that one out of the way and, and learn from it and repeatedly expose yourself to those stressors, those environments. And the more prepared you are, the less anxiety you're going to have when you get out there. If you do regular mental reps, right, regular dry reps, like you're going to get out there and that's something you can lean on. That's a constant, uh, a constant tool you'll have in your tool belt for the rest of your career. If you know that, hey, I can slow, I can slow this game down. If the game speeds up, I have my red light routine. If I'm kind of getting a little bit, a uh, little bit anxious here, or the game, like whatever. I know I can just take my deep breath. I can rely on that same pre-pitch routine I've had every single time that I've done thousands and thousands and thousands of times. So I really, I like how you phrase that as a, as a kind of a growing up. I think it's definitely something that needs to be addressed more in the game, especially the mental side, not just with baseball, but just the whole like the the mental health things like as athletes, like we're going through a lot and that's not even counting our personal lives. I feel like, in, like that's something in, as a, in baseball that we need to kind of like take more of a charge at and just kind of like, I mean, any, like I'm sure you guys know, like with in-house and like with your teammates, like there's there's a lot of stuff that's going on that's a, I don't know, a constant that's like repetitiveness. And a lot of guys get overwhelmed. For sure. For sure. And obviously in college, there's a lot, you have to suddenly learn time management. You have to learn to balance your, your course load. And there is such a thing as too much. Like um, I'm very careful when it comes to uh, overloading guys with too much information or uh, there's a point at which optimization becomes overkill where you're like, okay, I want you to have a, a whoop strap and I want you to take these 19 supplements and I want you to do like, 
you know, 18,000 corrective, corrective exercises every day before you even get to like start your training. And by the time you do your first actual lifting exercise, you're like mentally exhausted. And then I want you to get to practice an hour early to do all these drive. Like there is actually such a thing as too much where okay, like sometimes we'll take a reductionist approach where it's like, what is actually the minimum amount of this particular thing that is effective that you can do? Because I'd rather allocate those mental resources separate. Like we know mental, your mental resources are a finite thing. It's not like we can just crank the dial on everything up to, to max capacity. So yeah, that's, that's a, that's a great point. Like you do need to figure out, I only have so much to give on a daily basis. What is that? Even me, like someone who's extremely motivated and all I want to do is like play in the big leagues. Like I only have so much to give on a daily basis. And so I allocate those resources accordingly. So how do you, uh, how do you use your time management with like with yourself? Like, cause I'm assuming you're still training as well, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of an interesting case because, uh, my training, my rehab, uh, everything I've been through is directly benefiting tread as a whole. Uh, because again, when I learn something, it's, it's immediately in our programs. Like I'm not sitting here on information that could be used to help our athletes. Uh, we're like, if I learn something about the elbow or about, uh, you know, hip anatomy or hip rotation or something like I'm trying to figure out how to implement this stuff on scale with our athletes. In my particular case, uh, I was with the White Sox from 2014 to 2016. Um, I had elbow surgery in 2017, uh, had hip surgery in 2020, had another hip surgery uh, five months ago this year because the first hip surgery didn't work, had another elbow surgery uh, last month. And so I've, I've had a number of injuries that have kind of been plaguing me that I'm trying to get right uh, so that I can, can make that comeback myself. Uh, I can get into those if you want. Um, but the long story, uh, to make a long story short, I've never stopped training. I've never stopped trying to rehab. I still believe I can throw 100 and play in the big leagues uh, if I can get my hip right and my elbow right. And so that's the goal. But along the way, I'm going to share everything I possibly can, everything I learn, and also use it to grow a really cool business on, on the way. So the goal, is, the goal is definitely still to play in the big leagues. Oh, absolutely. So in, in your rehab process right now, where are you at? So we can get into that if you want. Uh, so I had a, a cam and pincer lesion in my hip, uh, basically hip impingement. I didn't realize I had, had hip impingement for about three years. So I didn't actually realize I had hip impingement until 2019 because my body was compensating around it. I was having knee pain and back pain. And I just had a block in my hip, but it wasn't, it wasn't painful. So I didn't actually know why I couldn't, uh, you know, feel, I felt like I couldn't get separation. I felt like I couldn't stay closed with my hips, but I didn't really know why. I started to realize that I couldn't get as deep on squatting as, as I used to finally started hurting, uh, you know, pretty bad to where I couldn't throw. And so then I got hip surgery in, in 2020 for that, which they basically go in and they, they shave down this bone spur in your hip joint, uh, both on the, on the socket end, it's called a pincer. So this, you have your hip socket, uh, you have your, your femur and you have the acetabulum in the hip socket. Now in a normal hip, you can go into hip flexion, right? It's, it's clean. You can rotate, you can flex, it's fine. Uh, what happens is you develop uh, what's called a cam lesion, which is like a, a like basically a lump, a bone spur on the neck. And so you go to rotate and it hits, it basically grinds away on the acetabulum. It grinds away in the socket. Or you can also develop what's called a pincer. It's like this little hook 
that another piece of bone that comes down off the socket. And then you, the hip goes to rotate. And then it, again, it grinds. In my case, I had both. So I had a cam lesion and I had a pincer. And so I was just grinding away on the lining of my hip. Um, I don't know if that's based on how I was throwing or just based on my, my genetics. It could be either. So they went in, they shaved those bone spurs down, they repaired the labrum. Uh, for whatever reason, a year later, I still wasn't able to, to squat and throw without that pinching, without that pain. So I got a revision surgery. I got it basically done again uh, about five months ago. Uh, currently, it's doing much better than it was, and I'm planning to be throwing soon. I got a, a bone spur taken out in the back of my elbow uh, last month, which is something I've needed for a couple of years. I'm just waiting to get the hip healthy. I'm pretty close, I feel, to getting the hip healthy, so I got that taken care of. The plan is to start throwing this winter. But again, it's as it takes as long as it takes. I'm not sitting here trying to rush to get signed with like the first team that I can. I'm trying to get my body right. I'm trying to maximize my true potential uh, as an athlete, as a thrower, also as a pitcher. As soon as that happens, I'm sure that if all the stars align, like there will be a team waiting for me. And so I'm patient. Like my focus is on tread. My focus is on getting my body healthy. And all I've wanted to do since I was 15 years old is pitch in the big leagues. I still think that's in the cards if I can get my body healthy. I'm definitely with you on that. Is, and not naming any organizations, but is there is there a, like a, a group of organizations that you would like want to sign with knowing that you'd be able to keep your training? I'm definitely not going to name organizations on yeah. here. Um, there are definitely organizations that, that are uh, very much hands-on uh, in, in a negative way. And there's organizations that let you do what you, you need to do and treat you like you're a professional. Um, and I would definitely be drawn towards those organizations. And, and we see that with our athletes. It's, it's really frustrating when, you know, you work with them all off season, they make progress. And then, you know, the coordinator comes in and changes, changes them the first day of spring training without even asking, you know, not knowing anything about them and not giving them any say in the matter. And they just get changed because, you know, the coordinator knows more than every player, you know, without having to even ask them any questions. So um, it's definitely frustrating. And that would be a criteria. Like I'm not going to go sign with a team that's going to, you know, screw up everything I'm working towards. Would you, would you ever have any interest in going like, like obviously you're wanting to go straight into affiliated, but would, if you had to, would you play indie ball to get back in? It would definitely be a consideration. Um, yeah. uh, I feel like I have it in me to, to be good enough to where that wouldn't have to be a consideration. Right. Um, definitely, if, if I had to go the indie ball route, uh, I'm not at the level that I feel like I can get to. So that to me, to me, the goal would be to, to sign, uh, you know, relatively uh, be relatively quick to get to the big leagues or at least uh, be on that track. And then it, it's up to me to perform. Um, if I'm throwing 92, I'm not going to go play any ball throwing 92. So I'm done if I'm throwing 92. So, and how old are you right now? Uh, I'm about to be 30 soon. You're about to be 30? Yeah, I'm turning 30 in November. Gotcha. Yeah, it's, it's going to be definitely, it's going to be interesting. I'm excited. I'm excited to see that. Just the whole, the transition. It's just kind of like a, it's like a storybook kind of like movie type thing. Like injury here, injury here, injury here. And then, okay finally trying to get it right, get healthy, make the comeback. For sure. Yeah, I've, I've had probably more injuries than anybody. Um, I'm thinking of like uh, Dean Jackson is, yeah, that's the is a friend of mine. He's, he's an example of like a guy who's 
I can relate to on a lot of levels because he's been through a lot of the same stuff. Yeah. Uh, hip surgeries, elbow surgeries. I told him I had more surgeries than him. So <laughs> I, I win, but, but yeah, it's, it's definitely like most guys just retire. Like they go through like the second surgery. They're just like, I'm done, but I'm fortunate in, in this situation to where I have as long as I want to give to this game because I'm also in, in trade. I'm, I'm in the baseball development industry. And so as, as odd as it is, like, I was, I was okay getting this bone spur taken out of my elbow because now I can relate to the guys that we're going to be training that are having bone spur surgery or uh, want to know, should I get bone spur surgery and what do I do and what mistakes should I look out for? Like every time I have an injury, um, I'm learning not just about my body, but I'm learning things that we can then apply to, to pitchers as a whole. Yeah, it's like and the, the whole thing of like the keep going and the surgeries and the surgeries. A guy that I know, he's from the St. Louis area, his name is Pete Fairbanks. Okay. Like he's had he's had two TJs and didn't make it to the big leagues until after that. Like that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, Pete. Uh, so I don't I don't know him personally, but he was apparently he came in through in Charlotte and he, he apparently was upset I couldn't make it. Uh, he, he he's good friends with one of our coaches. Yeah. So, yeah, and I'm I'm a I'm a fan of how he throws, because uh, short arm action. I, well, I've I've seen the progression for him. Uh, if you've ever seen video of him when he was throwing like 95 with a terrible arm action like he looks a lot better right now yeah whenever he was going after his first surgery he uh he was coaching at one of the younger teams for the the travel organization i played with in st louis so i got the, i got this beer on him quite a bit he's he's a good dude awesome yeah i'm looking forward to meeting him at some point yeah and then kind of going on that kind of talk about a little bit about because you're going to pitch a palooza right I'll be speaking there. So can I give a little little sneak peek of what the, our listeners can kind of expect for there? Uh, I do not have a presentation topic planned yet. Oh, uh, I've got okay. a lot of ideas uh, that I'm trying to kind of narrow down exactly which one uh, is going to be most impactful for that event. Are you speaking so I, could, I could take it in a bunch of different directions. Um, so I'm still mulling that one over. Are you speaking at the ABCA as well? As of now, no. Uh, I am speaking at the World Pitching Congress. Uh, Tyler White runs that one. Yeah, that's it. Is it in St. Louis still? Yes. Yeah, yeah it's in uh, mid-January this year. Okay, nice. And then kind of to digress back to our uh, training side. So the, another question that I had loaded down and you had some videos for as well is the, the quad dominant versus glute dominant. And kind of why does, I feel like, my personal experience i've seen quad dominant guys kind of get kind of get shit on a little bit yeah so i think it's it's a little hard to actually define uh what what we mean when we're talking about glute or quad dominant so it's it's used as kind of a very crude categorization system for how a pitcher kind of distributes their weight um you think of a quad dominant as more uh more of like a front squat front squat position quad dominant in general uh, you're going to have a guy that's more upright. The knee is going to be further out over the toe. Uh, the weight is going to be uh, more out towards the toe. Um, so that's kind of the quad dominant position or posture. It's more of a posture. So where is their torso relative to where their knee is relative to where their foot is? Uh, glute dominant is going to be more of thinking like a box squat. So the bar is on your back and you're reaching the hips back. So more of a true hinge position, uh, more bent over torso, torso posture. And the glute is now the, the main uh, kind of primary mover of what's maintaining that posture. So if you think like a traditional athletic stance, 
that's a glute dominant position. If you think of someone who's just flat footed and kind of sitting back, their quads are really the thing kind of primarily engaged there. Again, front squat position, um, that's, more, that's more quad dominant. So it just gets, it gets confusing when people kind of have that debate because no one's really properly defined which is which. And to be honest, it's, it's difficult for me to tell you, like if they're at one end of the spectrum or the other, it's easy. But a lot of guys are somewhere in the middle uh, where it's, like it's difficult to define. To, I feel like Max Scherzer is kind of like in, that, in the middle there. Yeah, so he, he's not a super obvious example of, of either one. Um, typically, I, I'm, only, I'm only considering it kind of a, a flaw, so to speak, a quad dominant as a flaw. If I'm seeing the weight shift way into onto the toe side uh, of the body, I see the heel come off, see the heel come off way early. Uh, I see it then negatively affect their direction. So they, they get, they start striding way across body. And even if all that happens, it still can work. But if I see from there that there's a breakdown as they actually rotate. So if the, the lead leg then just completely uh, doesn't stabilize properly and the back leg shoots off the rubber and they have a really linear finish. Um, okay. Then that's an issue. Something's happening now. Now we try to trace it back to, okay. Did their weight start to shift way onto their toe? And is that what just drew the direction of their throw off and, and had this effect? So I don't instantly look at someone who's quad dominant and say, we need to change that. I try to look at, okay, they get onto their toe a little bit the knee shoots way out over the toe. They're a little bit more upright. Is that a problem? Like how does the rest of the throw unfold from there? Is that a problem? So it's funny, uh, one of our guys, Clay Holmes, who's uh, obviously a reliever with the Yankees, he got, are you familiar with, with who he is? Yeah, I don't he, know. Yeah, so he's a reliever with the Yankees now, throws like a 99-mile-an-hour sinker, one of the better sinkers in the big leagues, if not the best one. Um, so he was a guy that when he came to us a year ago, he was uh, his velo was down, he'd had uh, a flexor strain, um, and he had been kind of working on getting away from being, uh, being quad dominant, getting away from his heel coming up early um, and trying to be, keep the heel engaged more, uh, trying to get more, uh, more into the glute. And as soon as he had been doing all that stuff, like his velo had dropped, he'd got hurt, gotten injured. He was 92, 94 that year. And so for us, it was like, okay, we have this hypothesis that quad dominant is, is in general, not the most efficient way to move yourself down the mountain and, and how to hold your posture. Um, but we also had very clear evidence of when he was at his best in 20, I believe it was 2019 and throwing 97 plus, that's how we threw. He disengaged the heel early. He got into his quad a little bit. He cleared the hips super early. And so who am I to say that my, like my textbook philosophy uh, is going to work in every scenario. Uh, in his case, we already had evidence of how he threw at his best. And so we actually worked to get him back to that that quad dominant position and so that's where he was this year he averaged over 96 i believe uh towards the end of the year he was sitting over 97 in the vast majority of his outings you know all-star caliber pitcher going into next year so it, it just goes to show there's not a, there's no one right answer in general i don't like guys who shift into their toe big time, disengage the heel big time, and it affects their direction. It affects their lead leg block. But I'm 100% open. If someone can prove that it worked for them in the past, we're not going to stray from that if, if, it's a clear, if it's a clear answer. Yeah, I, 
I think pitching's it's it's a very complex it's a complex deal, and like as you know, there's there's not one way to do it. For sure, that, that's what that's what keeps me interested. That's right, like every player is is their own like uh, little little puzzle to solve, and, and it has their own unique issues, and you know as you as you begin to kind of put the pieces together, like. You can say, okay, I've, I've seen this this problem before in another guy like three years ago, or I've, I've seen a guy with similar issues here, but no one guy has all the same exact issues in, in one. So, again, that, that keeps it fun. There's so much I, you know, I still need to learn. There's so much the industry still needs to learn as a whole. Like one of my favorite quotes, like especially in training, is like all, like it's all drills are good and all drills are bad. It's like everybody's got some – like this might work for one guy, but it's not going to work for the other athlete. Yeah, completely depends on the context of the guy. Clay Holmes is the guy that I gave Rollins to because in his case, we need to get him, you know, out of the glute and clearing the hips a little bit earlier, Mm -hmm. right? Like I don't give Rollins to many people anymore. In his case, it was perfect for what what he needed to work on. So drills or exercises or long toss, like all these things are just tools and you need to know when to apply them and what the dosage, like you can think of yourself as like, you're basically like a doctor who's trying to like prescribe the ideal medication and the ideal dosage and prescription. If you prescribe the wrong medication, you might kill the patient. If you prescribe the right medication, but in 10 times the dosage they need, you might kill the patient, right? So you need, that, that's really how you look at it. You need to take in all the information, the training history, the injury history, the biomechanical information and feedback, do all those calculations, synthesize it all and, and figure out like what is the ideal prescription for this athlete. Yeah, that's a lot of great stuff. And kind of one last thing before we start, wrap it up. You guys, so in your in-house training, are you are you guys a Trackman or Rapsodo? So we have both. Uh, they both have their own uh, pr- kind of pros and cons. Uh, we primarily use Trackman, and that's not to say that Rapsodo isn't a good product. Uh, we like kind of the immediate, uh, immediate feedback nature of the Trackman. It, it loads up right away, like, to, like by the time the pitcher throws the pitch, turns around, we already have the data. So that's that's one kind of advantage that we see. Uh, the other main advantage is that we're big on actually seeing the, the true pitch movement uh, kind of profile from the pitch. Um, so for us, you know, that's, that's what TrackMan really measures is the actual pitch movement. And then from there, it kind of infers the, the spin. Rapsodo, on the other hand, it actually measures the spin out of the hand and then it kind of has its algorithm from my understanding this is how it works and and then it infers like what the actual pitch movement was so Repsoda might say you had 80 percent spin efficiency on so-and-so axis right you can trust that but then it's going to calculate well we think that that means this pitch would move this much 20 20 inches of vertical break and you know eight inches of horizontal that you cannot necessarily trust nearly as much um, because it didn't actually measure that movement. It inferred that movement. TrackMan actually measures the movement of the, of the ball over that 60 feet, six inches. And so, then it, but it doesn't actually get the spin out of the hand. It then says, okay, this ball actually moved 20 inches of induced vertical break and eight inches of horizontal. Uh, what, what spin, like what spin axis and what efficiency and all that stuff would need to have happened for a pitch to move this way. And so you can't fully trust that piece either from my understanding. 
So ideally, actually, you would have both. Uh, if you use the Rapsodo for the for the spin stuff, you'd use the TrackMan for the to get accurate movement. And that's actually what we did with with Clay Holmes. Uh, speaking of Clay Holmes, because he again it throws one of these uh, seam shifted wake pitches. He throws the Demon Sinker, and that thing is, I mean, nasty. Like so, he would read like two inches of vertical and like 19 inches of horizontal on that pitch. So that that's just a straight bowling ball. Um, but on the Rapsodo, it would it would read at like 12 vertical and like 15 horizontal. Like it would read as a like kind of dead zone fastball right. on Rapsodo because it, it the algorithm uh, from my understanding doesn't factor in with Rapsodo the seam shifted weight component. Uh, and so it's just it's just incomplete in some areas. I'm sure they're working to fix that. Um, but Trackman saw that. Trackman read it out as an elite demon sinker. Rap Soda read it out as a big league average fastball. So you say, what, what would you say is the importance is over like movement over spin rate? So people kind of spin rate is is it like an easy concept to explain to people. It's like how fast does this ball spin? Right. Um, but in reality, when you, when you start using a track man, you see that like spin rate doesn't actually have a huge correlation to the movement of the pitch. Like we'll have guys who have a 2000 RPM fastball, but they carry it 20 inches of vertical. And then you'll have guys with like a 2500 RPM fastball that carry it like 13 inches. So what actually, what, if you're a pitcher and you're throwing a 95 mile an hour fastball, like, do you want a pitch that has a lot of spin, but doesn't actually move? Or do you want the pitch that actually like has that, that hop to it? Right, like uh, Josh Hader is a really good example of this. And I'm, I'm like paraphrasing his, his data because I don't have it in front of me, but he spins it like bottom, like well below average as far as spin rate. It's like 2000, yeah, 2050. Yeah, like average is like 2100. It's really, it's low. Yeah. It's low, his spin rate's low. And I'm, I'm similar to him as far as like my spin rate, um, but he carries it not just above average. I think it's like 17 something. So he carries it above average, but he also carries it for his arm slot. He has a low arm slot. Mm -hmm. From that arm slot, he carries it like elite, elite from that low of an arm slot. And Craig Kimbrell is the same way. Jacob deGrom is the same way. Uh, so it's not necessarily about spin rate. It's about is that ball actually moving or not, right? Like, do you care if your, if your curveball like says it has 2,700 RPM or do you care if the curveball actually has nasty break to it? Right. Well, what you really want is the nasty break on the curveball. You're just hoping that the spin rate, if it's high, means it'll be nasty, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be nasty. So there is some correlation there, but what we actually want is pitch our pitches that move in a nasty way. Tragman measures 